You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so pleased that you are hopping aboard the arts bus for this morning's tour. Back in December, the Missouri Arts Council started a new service, highlighting four artists each month on their website. The featured artists include performers, musicians, authors and poets, visual artists, fashion designers, storytellers. Artists working in any genre may apply to be featured. And I thought, well, it's nice to chat to people who are working beyond our immediate neighbourhood, but who are adding to the creative commons of Missouri. So this week, our arts tour is taking us a little farther afield. To Kirksville to chat with visual artist Lindsay Dunnigan. To Web City to meet author and poet F.C. Schultz. To Lee's Summit to talk to glass artist Wanda Tyner. And to St. Louis to check in with soul musician and vocalist Brian Owens. So, here we go. I have always had a fascination with differing degrees of opacity and translucency, vellum paper, gauzy, diaphanous fabrics, things that hint at something beyond, a mystery beneath, a glimpse of a bigger picture or a secret. And I don't know if that fascination was really something I could have put my finger on, but when I saw the work of artist Lindsay Dunnigan, it was the layers that spoke to me first. Lindsay is an assistant professor of art at Truman State University, where she runs the painting department and her artworks are in the collections of, amongst others, Boston Children's Hospital, Nashville Airport, Marriott Hotels and Capital One. And here she is. Good morning, Lindsay Dunnigan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. I am captivated by your work. I wonder whether what I find fascinating in your work is the same as your intent and and whether that matters. As the creator how important is it to you that a viewer feels your intent or that they feel something? So it's interesting. You really hit the nail on the head as to what I am fascinated by, which definitely is this hidden narrative, uh, layers revealing themselves. But as far as my desire for the viewer to experience what I am experiencing when I make the work, when I look at the work, I don't really have any objective for the viewer. I think everyone approaches art from their own personal lens and their own experiences. That's what they take to view things. And, uh, you know, if someone interprets my art differently, it's totally fine with me. So, yeah, I don't have any expectations from the viewer, really. I always worry when I look at a piece of art that maybe I'm not doing it correctly because there's a correct way and a wrong way in terms of what the artist intends. But really, I suppose, as the artist, you just want to move people in some way. Yeah, I think that some people, that's their motivation is to move people. And I think other people are just really trying to understand their world. And it's actually not even about other people creating the art and showing the art. Um, And if you happen to connect with someone, then that's just a really fabulous bonus. So for me, yeah, it it is more about uh, just 
discovery and uncovering secrets. And, and when I find, you know, someone who, who I can relate to, who understands what I'm doing, then it's just such an exciting feeling, but I don't expect that. Well, your work explores human interactions with the natural environment, how we move through it, how we affect it, how we are spiritually connected to it, all of which started with your childhood in Alaska. So when you think about Alaska in terms of art and materials and your senses, what are the textures or the notes that you want to include in your work? Yeah, Alaska is just this absolutely magnificent place that is full of mystery. You know, my dad and my mom would take my brother on these cross-country skiing trips, uh, you know, just in our backyard. We would hop out and in the evenings or on the weekends go for these long, long, long skis and uh, just come across a moose on the path. Exciting stuff. So that sense of mystery is definitely a huge part of just my whole childhood in, in Alaska. And then, of course, that crisp, cold feeling that makes you feel alive and then feeling grateful for light, you know, because in Alaska, it's dark for so long. We have the shortest day of the year where the sun never rises. And then we also have the longest day of the year where the sun ever sets in the summer. So in those dark winters, you just really long for light. And so I think that shows in my work as well. Another incredible landscape you spent two years in was the Atlas Mountain region of Morocco during your stint there with the Peace Corps. How did your time in Moroccan culture alter your sense of human connection with the environment? Oh, that's really interesting. So Morocco, the landscape where I lived for those two years is really, really different from anything I've experienced elsewhere. It has this magnificent vastness where you can just see forever but then there are also these amazing rolling hills and cavernous spaces as well. So it's magnificent, but in a way that's really different. Where I lived, it wasn't quite as lush. It was a little drier, but there were still farms and gardens. And then the people in Morocco, where I lived and pretty much everywhere I went in Morocco, were extremely welcoming. It's really interesting. The community, there was a lot less fear of the stranger in Morocco. And it could be just because maybe I was a foreign anomaly. People were so friendly. But I think that there really is this deep kindness that people grow up inviting their neighbor in for tea or, you know, someone who who they maybe meet at a shop. So people were always so welcoming. So that extreme friendliness, desire to get to know one another that I picked up from Moroccans and then that vast landscape, I think that really is reflected in my project, the Journey Home Project, where I gathered homes from lots of diverse people and then painted them into this huge labyrinth you could walk through. Well, you have three bodies of work that I would like to touch on today, if we have time to do all three of them. There's Natural Liquidation, Northern Catch, and Skimming Boundaries. So let's start with Natural Liquidation. Tell us a little bit about that body of work. So that body of work stemmed from a long series that I had where I worked with maps, just really fascinated by the landscape and also especially viewing it from above. You know, when I was a kid, my mom moved my brother and I to Texas when I was 10 and my dad stayed in Alaska. So I have twice a year during Christmas or Thanksgiving and then also all summer, my brother and I would fly back and forth between them. And so I just have this deep memory of looking out the plane window as a kid with my little brother 
and longing for one of my parents, especially my dad, because we spent less time with him. And so we would look out onto this landscape with mountains and rivers that were cut through the land. And it felt like this physical cut between my nuclear family, that visual metaphor for what I was experiencing. And that it was the genesis for the, all of my map work, really just um, the magic of the sky, but then also that deep emotional connection to family. And then when I came to the series Natural Liquidation, I was really thinking about the landscape and what we are losing in terms of climate change and just what we're sacrificing for progression. And I started to change the boundaries of those shapes to reflect maps. So the the paintings are no longer on straightforward rectangles or squares. They're instead on these cut substrates that are more amorphous. And I was thinking about liquidating our assets and basically what we're giving up. And the shape of those substrates is also reminiscent of receding coastlines and our changing landscape. And one of the things that happens is that the exterior landscape doesn't align with the interior painted landscape. So roads are kind of going off the edge and bodies of water um, dissipate into the edge as well. So this misalignment of how we're approaching the earth. I mean, I'm still, I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to help get ourselves back on track and, and do some reconnaissance work in the environment. But there is definitely a sadness to that work. You write about your collection, Northern Catch, that it parallels a glance back at your childhood and evokes a Panglossian nostalgia, meaning it is a memory of the best of all possible worlds. What memories hold that collection together for you? Oh, I have a great memory to share. (laughs) (laughs) So when we used to go skiing, we would go cross-country skiing. That is a really tough exercise. I don't know if you've ever done that before. I have. <laughs> so as a kid, my brother and I, we would just complain, complain, complain. You know, we don't want to go. And my dad would be like, we're going. And so we would hop in the car. And then there's this one place we like to go to a lot, but there was this one hill that was absolutely massive. And every time we got to the very top of that hill, he would take out a Kit Kat bar and he would split it and he, we would each get a piece. <laughs> So we were so motivated by getting a little piece of this Kit Kat bar. You can tell my parents were stingy with sugar. (laughs) (laughs) But that is such a good memory. Like, oh, I climb this mountain, I get a Kit Kat, a piece of a Kit Kat. (laughs) I love one of the works in that collection is adorable. It's a, a Jacob's Ladder which was such a flashback memory for me because I had one of those toys as a child. What inspired you to come up with that for this collection? I love making books. So I am a bookmaker and I had made a Jacob's Ladder a long time ago when I was in graduate school. And it is so confusing to make. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is really like a puzzle, but it's also a really fun puzzle. And when you finish it, it's so satisfying because all of a sudden you have this object that does something magical, which is that it just flips around without you having to actually do much. So I just thought it was perfect for this series that is rooted in thoughts of play and childhood. Um, And also one of the things I liked about it is that I use a lot of gold and silver leafing in my work. And that's definitely true in this series. And when you flip the Jacob's ladder 
that silver leaf just shimmers because the whole thing is vibrating as each little piece falls into the next. And it just feels alive. It feels like water. It feels very much like the way I want the work to be behaving. You know, it's kind of physically doing what I would like the work to be able to do. The third portfolio of work that I really want to touch on before we close, because it was the one that moved me the most, is called Skimming Boundaries. And like many people, I watched a parent slowly disappear into dementia. And this collection is about your grandmother and her battle with Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about how your artwork follows the journey that she took. So if you look at these pieces, they are landscapes with holes missing or they're landscapes that have multi-layers and you can't fully see exactly what's going on. And I was really thinking about this space that exists beyond us that we can't touch, but some, some do. So when my grandmother would come in and out of herself, out of the recognizable parts of herself, I wondered where she had gone. And it felt like she was testing the realms or the boundaries of this other place that she was about to enter. And it was pretty clear the sicker she got that she was going to be passing on. Uh, And for me, I use forest imagery because I just feel such a spiritual connection to the landscape, especially the forest. And it just seemed like the perfect place to lose someone to this other realm, to this other space that if we're living, we can't fully know or touch. Your titles for the work, Cascading Thresholds, Searching the Edges, Peripheral Collision, and combined with the imagery, it just really took me back to the last years of my father's life as I watched the edges of his memory blur and shrink. And it, I've never seen art that captures how I felt. And I love the dyes that you used. You use natural plant dyes in that. Tell us a little bit about the dyes. So the dyes were something that I had in my mind for a very long time. When I was in the Peace Corps, I helped develop the small business of artisans. And one of the major industries in Morocco is weaving. And so one of the things that we did quite often was teach weavers how to use natural dye in their work, because there's so many amazing colors that you can get from the landscape. And and it's one of the things that I have always been interested in ever since But I never really found a way to incorporate it into my work until my grandmother was going through Alzheimer's and I was just missing her and mourning her loss. And and this just sort of bubbled up. You know, I figured out, okay, if I dye paper instead of wool fiber, then I can get a similar effect. And then I would look at the paper and, and that's how the idea of this sort of disintegrating moments came to me. Well, you can see all of Lindsay Dunnigan's portfolio of work on her website at lindsaydunnigan.com and also works from her Northern Catch collection are on display at the Weinberger Fine Art Gallery in Kansas City until March the 20th. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing your inspirations with us today. And I hope we might see a show of your work in Columbia before too long. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. The multi-award-winning author, Margaret Atwood, says that the mere act of writing is an act of optimism. You're optimistic that you're going to finish whatever it is you set out to write. You're optimistic that you'll find someone to publish it and that once published, 
you're optimistic enough that somebody will actually want to read it. And I don't think I could muster that much optimism. But luckily for those of us who love to read, there are people whose writing glass is always half full. And one of them is my guest this morning, novelist and poet F.C. Schultz. Hello, F.C. Hello. Good morning. What does F.C. stand for? My full name is Francis Christian Schultz. I pretty much go by Christian, but I decided for my writing to go by FC. I had you down as Felix Charles. I was imagining what the FC might Yes, that's for. a fun game that even my <laughs> friends like to play. Uh, Ferdinand, Francisco, all those fun stuff. <laughs> so are you optimistic by nature or just when it comes to writing? I actually love that quote. I use it in some of the writing workshops that I do to set the groundwork, but I am uh, pretty optimistic by nature. And I actually um, have a tattoo on my forearm that says stay positive. So, (laughs) so I'd say yes to answer your question very much so. So you're the author of three middle grade novels, a nonfiction book about writing called Doing the Work is Enough, and a new book of poetry that came out last November called An Honest Life is Immortal. What inspires you to write? That's a big question, especially for those different genres we just mentioned. It's a little bit different for each. I first started in my 20s, really, when I read Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury and then kind of learn more about his passion for writing. And I was like, I want that also. Um, It's so contagious. And then reading his short stories and just how much he can do with such a short amount of words. And so I started writing short stories and fiction first. I didn't really grow up reading much or writing much. This all happened much later in life, kind of in college. I discovered some of the passion I had for these things. And so Once I started developing that, I just kept getting story ideas and more story ideas. And so that led to um, wanting to write the fiction. But then with that, I learned uh, and got in touch with a guy named Tim Grawl. And he defines marketing, book marketing, as making long-lasting connections with people and being relentlessly helpful. (laughs) And so I kind of wanted to do that and say, let's, how can I be relentlessly helpful? And so I started a blog, just short little um, posts about writing and different aspects of writing. And that's what I collected into that book about writing. And so that was what made me want to do that book. And then poetry was kind of happening on the back burner um, that whole time, writing little poems here and there, uh, mostly for my wife or my kids. And so nothing really worth sharing. And then I read Sailing Alone Around the Room by Billy Collins. And it just changed the way I view poetry and just how fun his poems can be. But also, it's clear how serious he's taking it. Writing poetry is very serious business, even if the content might seem less serious, if that makes sense. And so I loved what he was able to do um, and some of those ideas and kind of capture them. Um, And so that kind of shifted how I even write poetry. And then all of a sudden, these poems felt a little bit more like they had a wider audience. I started submitting them and they were getting accepted. Um, And then there's a local publisher, Pub Hound Press. Um, I met the guys there and to my surprise, they liked my work and wanted to publish it. So 
yeah, that's kind of how I got into writing in those different genres. So lots to unpack there. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm fascinated that you weren't a reader as a child, but are a writer as an adult, because I've always thought those must go hand in hand. You were not a reader of any kind of fiction as a child? I think I can remember maybe two or three books that I read growing up, fiction books, <laughs> that were amazing. I don't know. I mean, I played a lot of sports growing up. I'm the oldest of five, so there was a lot of people around all the time. Um, there wasn't a lot of quiet time. <laughs> so I definitely enjoyed what I did read, books for school and stuff like that. But then when I got to college, it was um, – I think it was having some good teachers and professors that really showed what – literature can do and that kind of slow learning from my comp classes and then I took an American literature class and I took a seminar on creative writing and those kind of things brought that to the surface for me. Second piece of unpacking your book about helping other people write being relentlessly helpful as you say I mean you imagine people like Margaret Atwood or Stephen King people that have published 100 novels that have been writing for years that they are putting out these masterclass master books about how to write yet you're coming at it from a relatively newbie on the scene you're a new writer and you're helping other people who are even lower down the ladder further rungs behind you than you are what do you think you have as an advantage when you're helping people from the point of view of also being new yourself? A lot of the services and stuff that I offer, I do try to gear it and use the language for new writers or for people who are trying to write their first book. And so there's a lot that I don't know. You know, I've obviously just started, I've published my first book in 2017. And so obviously there's much I don't know, but I love learning about the craft. I've listened to hours and hours and hours of those people that you've just mentioned and Brandon Sanderson's podcast and other writing podcasts and screenwriting podcasts and learned. I can help point people in the right direction. At least you want to learn about screenwriting here. Are, here's a book that I read that you need to probably start with. And here's a podcast and here's some articles to start with. And story is going to be similar throughout those different genres. And so it is helping people really just do the work. That's the name of the book. Doing the work is enough. I find that a lot of people in these writing groups um, or people who are just starting and want to write their first novel don't know how to sit down and do the work or they have this big idea. And some of the best advice I got when I was first starting is you probably have an idea for this epic space saga <laughs> But you're not ready to write that yet. If you try to write that right now, you're going to get discouraged and you're not going to finish and you're going to say, I'm not a writer. So my very first book, I took the hero's journey framework almost to a T, mapped out an outline. There's no more than two characters on stage at the same time. And so it's very straightforward. I tried to bring a twist in and bring some new elements into it to keep it fresh, but Knowing my capacity as a first-time writer, not trying to write this this huge um, saga. And so things like that that I can offer to new writers, I think, is helpful. Well, let's have you read one of the poetry works from your debut collection. Let's start with one that's titled Birthday Con. I'm going to have a convention and only invite people born on the same day as me, the same year, too. 
We'll all gather in a huge hall somewhere in Chicago. Maybe the second year we could go international, say Kyoto or Liverpool. You'll have to show your birth certificate at the door, and we'll have a bouncer to escort anyone born even a minute too early or too late. There will be workshops by panelists who use their years to pursue their calling, and we'll all sit in the audience second-guessing the path we chose. We'll have a keynote to remember the 90s, being the last children of Analog, Y2K, and being 11 on 9-11. The closing session will have a moment of silence for those born on our day, but who have passed along the way. We'll find the oldest among us, the youngest. Then we'll spend the rest of the evening talking, laughing, making friends, and no one would fear for conversation because we all have at least one thing in common. I love that because I am always fascinated when I meet somebody that was, has the same birthday as me. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> I don't know why that is. So I feel like at the moment, poetry is having a moment right now, thanks to the fabulous Amanda Gorman. Yes. But poetry can be a tough ask for lots of us, and I include myself in that, because it really asks more of our brain. But when I watch Amanda Gorman deliver her poetry with such fire and tenderness and so much physical eloquence. It moves poetry into performance art. And then suddenly in my brain, it becomes more accessible. Is the act of performing poetry something you're comfortable doing? Well, since we released the poetry book in November, we decided not to have a poetry reading because of COVID restrictions and safety. And so what we actually did was I have a friend who's a professional videographer. And so we hired him to do a virtual reading. So it's actually on YouTube and it's on my website. It's about 20 minutes. I pick some of my favorite poems and then I read some from the book as well. And that was the first time I really read my poetry. And I didn't read it in front of anybody, but I, I really had a blast doing it. And so I am looking forward to being able to get out there and do some more readings in person and see how people react and which poems people react to. Because it is different when you're receiving it and you're hearing it being read the way the, the poet wrote it. But I, other than that, I don't have much experience reading aloud. Well, let's give you one more. This, <laughs> this is another poem from your collection. Tell me a little bit first about what inspired it. It's called Woe to the Porcelain Poets. Where did that come from? So we've all been in a public restroom and seen graffiti written on the wall, and we try to ignore it and just get out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> and so I was just thinking one day about reading Billy Collins' work in a, a nice hardback edition with beautiful typeface and perfectly laid out and how actually the setting or the atmosphere where I receive a poem makes a big difference. Um, and so I was thinking, what if I would have encountered one of Billy Collins' poems <laughs> in a public restroom? Would I have received it the same way? Probably not. And so that's kind of what this is, the woe to those, those porcelain poets who just get neglected. One funny thing about this, I had it in the original layout of the book. I had it a little bit later on, but my, my publisher said, let's start with it. And so <laughs> there I was having to make the decision. My very first book of poetry is about a public restroom in the very first poem in my first book of poetry. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Woe to the porcelain poets. 
I wonder if the country would have moved me if I first encountered it pinned on the white splattered tile of a come-and-go one-holer. Surely this hardback collection with its thick cream paper helps cut into my chest cavity while the elegant philosophia typeface administers the consonants and vowels directly into my heart. It's no fault of the poem that I don't tend to approach toilets with my heart dangling over the porcelain bowl that I would not have had a second thought of that little matchstick mouse in a city rest stop. Oh, how I regret all the potential bowls I miss scratched on the stall door next to the phone numbers I dare not call. Lost are the Dickinson's lipstick painted right at eye level on the mirror above the sink where it would most likely be cleaner not to wash up. No attention was given to the could-be Longfellows engraved to the quarter machine bolted in the corner as I flicked off the light with the sleeve of my coat. So many one-hole wonders neglected in my angst and haste. Alas, a lesson learned that will not quickly be forgotten. Avoid the public restroom at all costs. Love it. Well, you can find links to all of F.C. Schultz's books on his website at fcschultz.com. And I'm sure that local bookstores will be able to get hold of them for you, too. Thank you so much for taking time to chat today, F.C. Thank you so much for having me. A lot of art, like science, is about trial and error and failure. And some art forms, like glass, are such a blend of art and science that even with vast reserves of tenacity and curiosity, it is a long journey before you're ready for prime time. But that journey is one that my next guest this morning decided to embark on around five years ago, and she must be tenacious as her works are already on display in galleries. Good morning, Wanda Tyner. Good morning. I am always curious, wonder about how people arrive at a particular medium when they are a mature beginner, let's say, coming back to it at a different period of life. You've spent your career working in the IT sector. How did glass become your thing? Well, I traveled a lot for work and we traveled for fun and we collected a lot of glass art on our travels and it's throughout our house. And when I decided I needed a new adventure, I made a list of things I wanted to learn. And at the very top was how the glass art in our home collection was made. I really thought it would be a one-time class. Now I know I'll move on to the next thing. But (laughs) instead, I just kept taking more and more classes and learning more and more and became more and more fascinated and realized that I actually had a creative knack, I guess, for lack of a better word, for glass. And I just love the technical properties that go along with making glass art. I'm guessing that from reading about you, I don't think you're a do-it-by-halves kind of person. I'm wondering how much you thought when you set out on this journey, you had a shopping list of you know things that I need. Well, I need a kiln. <laughs> I need a glass saw. How lengthy is your inventory list today in five years? I mean, how <laughs> how vast is your studio at this point? Yeah, my husband would say I've taken over a good chunk of our garage and our <laughs> house. And I have three kilns now. So you have accumulated kilns, but then I need saws and grinders and, you know, I need a tile saw and I need a, a big lap grinder. And so, yeah, pretty much I've taken over a whole bay of the garage for all of that type of equipment. And I take over various other portions of the home as need be when I'm assembling some of the artwork as well. 
Well, in your big kid job, your day-to-day job, you're associated with words like results-orientated, agile processes, transforming cultures. All of this seems a long way from the painstaking process of trial and error and the slow process of heating and cooling glass. How do your work and your art inform each other? Well, that's an interesting question. In some ways, it's nice to give up some of that results-oriented, but yet art is still very results-oriented. There's still a goal. There's still something I'm trying to achieve with the art or learn about the glass or, or whatever. And there's a whole plan of doing it because it usually takes multiple steps and multiple processes and different times in the kiln. And so there's a whole plan that goes into making that happen which is very similar to completing it, writing a software system or uh, working with a team to accomplish something. Did you set yourself any goals when you set out on this new journey? Like if I haven't done X by this date, then I'm just going to you know, move into watercolor or something else. <laughs> well, the honest truth, I started out having fun, just learning. And I just kept taking more classes and getting more involved. And I, it was only after I'd been I'd taken classes from many well-known artists around the country and decided I actually wanted to invest in my own equipment. I actually started working in somebody else's studio. The goals were first just, can I do it? Can I make the kind of art I want to make? And, you know, you really can't move beyond that until you feel like you've done that. And the first time I shared art and somebody said, I want to buy it, changed my perspective on where I might go with this. And so then I set out, you know, simple goals, like um, there's some local art organizations that require being juried in. Am I good enough to be juried in? And I did successfully jury into a Summit Art Organization and Best of Missouri Hands Organization. And that gave me a network of artists to understand what it meant to really go down that journey to become a, an art, a full-time artist. And I, I don't do anything halfway. <laughs> so when I decided to do this, I went all in. And, I, you know, you can find me out in my studio at all hours of the day and night. Is it more than you expected going into it? Yes. <laughs> in a good way? <laughs> yes and no. Uh, you know, I think you go into it thinking it's all about the creating, you know, the fun side of creating. But that's only one aspect. You know, it takes time to find galleries and or shows to apply for and art shows and photographing your artwork so that it can really be shown properly is a whole other skill set to learn. It's like every time you, you think you got it, there's another thing to learn or do. <laughs> well, much of your art is informed by your love of being out in nature. How do you describe your body of work to a stranger? Oh, that's interesting. I would say that my nature-inspired glass artwork is embodied by how I manipulate and form glass, how I create patterns and texture, and it's a combination of representative as well as abstraction of colors. I just love the vibrancy of colors of glass and, and love to experiment that way. So your, your body of work is partly sculptural. You have free standing 
sculptures and and vases and plates and then you have wall hanging art too so i mean in terms of your inspiration from nature it's in the theme of the work in the colors do you take photographs when you're out kayaking or hiking and then turn them into art in the studio how do you how do you take nature into your art i definitely take photographs when i'm out hiking and kayaking or anytime i'm outdoors um just looking out my window. And sometimes I actually represent that photo in glass in some way. I have a whole series that's about blooms and butterflies. And there I work to create kiln casting, which is casting the glass such that I can pick up the textures of the mold and then um, form them into shapes so that the butterflies are flying and the flowers are flowing. And then I combine it with some type of an abstract background, either green to represent petals or the color of flowers into some abstraction with butterflies and bees and ladybugs on top. And so there's a whole series where I really about the blooms and, and uh, trees and especially around kayaking. I, I have several pieces I've made where I'm in the water. And so the perspective is looking from the water, the shore at the trees and, and the bank. And then I have the, the abstraction is when I just, I get really inspired by the colors of flowers and the trees and the reflections on them. And so then I, I just play with the colors and create an abstraction. And then, you know, abstracts are kind of interesting. But when I step back and look at the colors, it, you know, I usually end up thinking of a forest and some or some hike I've done and seeing some reflections of that in the colors of the, you know, the way the trees reflected through the sun. As you said earlier, you've traveled all over the country in this journey, taking classes with other glass artists. I'm curious what have been some of your big aha moments that you've discovered along the way. One of my, I guess not aha moments, was getting opening the kiln when it's at 1,700 degrees and manipulating the glass. And it sounds so frightening. And after taking a class where I did that, I realized it not only wasn't was not frightening, it was just a joy. It's just fun. You know, yes, I got to put on a face mask and, you know, look, I look like a welder when I open up the kiln and I, you know, I don't touch the glass with my hands. I'm using equipment. But boy, what you can do with that molten glass to change it completely from what it was when you put it in the kiln is a lot of fun. And, you know, I think... A lot of glass artists never open up the kiln. And I can tell you, I open the kiln up almost every time it's up at temperature. You can't, you don't want to open it before, while it's heating up or cooling down. But once it's up at the hot temperatures, you can watch it and stop it, you know, because you're done with what you're doing or increase the temperatures because you want more or get in and manipulate it and kind of change the form of it. And that was probably my biggest aha is that I didn't have to just do this, the standard you know, cut the glass and let the kiln do the work. I could actually do the work. One particular work I want to ask you about is your representative sculpture of a Gibson Les Paul guitar, <laughs> which is quite amazing. <laughs> How did that come about? I make a, a lot of music note sculptures. Typically, they're abstract, colorful music notes. And the customer had bought several of my music notes and asked me if I could represent his Les Paul guitar in glass. And we talked about it for months, quite frankly, because chrome 
It's a very shiny, and you'd think, oh, glass is shiny. That should be easy, but it, I can't get that color in glass. And so I was very concerned when he wanted it to be you know, a replica. But once we talked about it more and I showed him what I could do, he said, I want it in glass. You just get it as close as you can in glass. And I said, <laughs> okay, I'll do it then. I had to make all the little individual pieces separately, figure out how I could get the color of his guitar. And then I cut it out with a ring saw and I'd bring it all together and make the sculpture. And it, I was so pleasantly surprised at how it turned out and how much he enjoyed the final result. Did you think this might be your new thing and this would be your trademark guitars? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's a trademark or not, but I'm learning there's an awful lot of guitars out there, a lot of very different, unique guitars. And I'm recently working on, and it's not quite done, a combo sculpture of a music note with a flute. And so that's that's a new journey for me as well. <laughs> that sounds pretty ambitious. <laughs> Well, you can see Wanda Tyner's work on her website at wandatynerglass.com, as well as on the Best of Missouri Hands website. Her work is also currently on display at the Buttonwood Art Space in Kansas City through March the 25th. Wanda is a member of the Kansas City Artists Coalition, as well as our own Columbia Art League. Wanda, thank you so much for coming on to chat today. Thank you, Diana. I cannot imagine what it must feel like to put a video out into the world and have it viewed over 52 million times. But that is an experience that my guest this morning can talk about. St. Louis-based soul musician, singer-songwriter Brian Owens, who recorded a gorgeous duet with his father, Thomas, back in 2013, singing the Sam Cooke classic, A Change Is Gonna Come. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Brian. 2013? I think so, if you believe what you read online. Goodness. <laughs> it's been eight years. That's crazy. I know. Time flies when you're having fun, hey? I guess so. How are you doing? I'm well. So let me start by asking you about that lovely duet with your dad. Tell us about your dad and, and how it all came about. I would I say probably around like 2011, 2010, 2011, I started singing that song with my dad to end shows sometimes in St. Louis. And so um, at the time I was on the board, still am, advisory council for this uh, organization called Kids Rock Cancer. And we were looking to do something as a fundraiser, something to raise awareness about what they do. So I was like, hey, let's do a version of Change is Gonna Come and we'll donate proceeds and all that kind of stuff. Well, we did it and it really didn't get any views, right? So I kind of just like abandoned it and it just was just living on YouTube. But people, you know, some people will watch it. And then in 2017, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but somebody watched it and it went from like 100,000 views to like a million to me. It just kept going up and up and up and it hasn't stopped since. Right. I mean, I think probably by now it's well over 52 and a half million because it was yesterday that I looked. It's just got a, a life of its own. How does that feel just to put something out there and then it, it becomes its own creature? Well, I mean, I think for me, it really hasn't, it hasn't changed a lot. Right. I love the fact that for me, that like God can use that for people. Because a lot of people go back to that video for comfort, for relief, for hope for life, 
We've had a couple people write us up and tell us that they were on the verge of suicide. The video has been used by the therapy community as a way for people who are dealing with trauma and PTSD. So for me, the numbers only matter if we have those types of stories. So you grew up in Belleville, Illinois, and then you went off to university to study music. But a couple of years in, you took a break to join a vocal group in Virginia. Then you enlisted in the Air Force and you became part of the Air Force Band of Mid-America at the Scott Air Force Base in Illinois before rocketing to global attention as the lead singer with the U.S. Air Force Band Sidewinder. And then you get to go to the White House and you're on television. Was there a point where you thought... I could take all of this and have a career that just ricochets me around the world, or I could make a home and dedicate myself to the community. As much as I would like to think that I was in a mature and sober-minded position to make those decisions, I think I was kind of think, you know, I think that the providence of God kind of made those decisions for me. And I'm glad because I don't know that I would have made the decision. Like even with what happened with the band Sidewinder, the focus of that was not me. It was on Angie Johnson, who ended up being on The Voice and, and doing the other stuff. And so that's when I really realized that, you know, I have a different path for my life and it's OK. And today I look back on it because now, I mean, that was. Man, that was almost 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago. And to see where I've gotten to come to. At this point in my life and career, I feel like my career is just now starting. Um, I don't feel like it's going down. I feel like there's a there's an upward trajectory. And now I don't just have me. I have about 14 other people with me. Brands, artists, directors, creative directors. We have a, a nonprofit that I founded and built out and have now handed over to my cousin to run. And now I'm doing a whole nother venture on the creative side that's focused on creative arts and multimedia. I mean, I don't know that I would have done all that stuff had I had the career and the success that I thought I wanted. Hmm. So again, going back in time, you met the legendary jazz master Diane Reeves, and she invited you to Carnegie Hall to do a masterclass with her. And you wrote somewhere or you said that it really changed your perspective on singing and performing. What did you take away from that that altered maybe your trajectory? Freedom. Like, I was pretty free in the moment. You know, I was always been somewhat extemporaneous when it came to performing. But with her, I felt like it was like, musically speaking, creatively speaking, never waste a good ledge. <laughs> like, you got to jump off. You have to. And so working with her at Carnegie Hall, that's what it, you know, every day, that's what I was presented with. Just opportunity after opportunity to jump off the ledge, jump off, jump off, jump off, jump off. And so that's really served me well now. Because even in the, in the way that I think of the creative space, it's just I see it as a bunch of ledges that I want to jump off. I see other people in the creative space and I'm like, great, that's their ledge. What's my ledge to jump off? And there's all these jumping off points that every time I jump off, it's just another, it's just more freedom and more freedom. And now I'm trying to instill that in all the younger creatives that I work with. You know, don't, don't ever stay inside a room when you have a good ledge, <laughs> you know, just jump. Creatively speaking, you ha every day, jump off of a ledge every day. Cause that's, 
That's the only way you find yourself. That's the only way you know if you can fly. So that was, that was, I mean, outside of just hearing her demonstrate and sing every day, which was a whole nother amazing thing in and of itself, just that freedom. Because, you know, art, art can be such a both subjective and constrictive thing, especially when you're trying to do it as a business, because we can fall into the ideology of industry and what is industry acceptable and like, well, this is what's hot right now. And I'm like, I just don't want to do that. I want to, I want to jump off of ledges, <laughs> you know, like doing an album of, of Johnny Cash covers. That was jumping off of a ledge. That was what I was going to ask you about next, because that does feel like a pretty serious ledge to jump off. That was in 2017. You released an album called The Soul of Cash. And I'm curious about when you put your own arrangement on songs that are so classically and forever attached to a particular singer, a particular voice and a genre, how far, maybe this is part of the ledge, how, how far do you feel comfortable pushing your arrangement and what response do you get from diehard cash fans? Um, I'll go with the latter question. <laughs> I mean, the, the response from diehard cash fans, um, to my knowledge, was overwhelmingly positive. What's more interesting, though, is the feedback that I got from people who didn't necessarily vibe with Johnny Cash. Right. It's the people who didn't necessarily like they were they were in the Johnny Cash in that way who said, when I heard these arrangements, man, I went back and listened to the original. That's the fun stuff for me. And quite honestly, I didn't do the only thing I did to those arrangements was I put a soul treatment on the rhythm. So. I just did different things in terms of treating the rhythm and the instrumentation, but I kept the melodies and I just sang them an octave up. Every song on that album is in his key. I just sang it. I just sang it the octave up. Why Johnny Cash? Why not Johnny Cash? Well, there's so many other people. I mean, you have another album with like covering Marvin Gaye, which which feels really within your wheelhouse. That's that's your sound. Johnny Cash, uh-huh. I mean, why not Billy Idol or somebody else? Which is exactly why. I, well, first of all, it was organic. I fell in love with Johnny Cash when I saw Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Walk the Line. Uh-huh. I mean, I've always heard, but I really fell in love because, I, you know, even though, I mean, everything is for theatrics, but I fell in love with the narrative of that story, the, the, the struggle, like the inner, the, the inner struggle of, of a guy who just as easily have been a preacher. Right. I, I, I was drawn to that. And, you know, I just dug his, I just dug the music. I really dug the music and there's a soulfulness in Johnny Cash and an honesty in his storytelling that transcends what he may sound like. And it was just like listening to Billie Holiday in a lot of ways, right? You know, someone who people may listen to their instrument and not necessarily be drawn to it immediately. But the more you listen, the more layers you discover in how they express a narrative. So that's why I was like Johnny Cash. And and exactly what you said, like... My voice was too close to Marvin for me to really like think, I, I don't want to have a career doing Marvin. Because that that's one, it's very obvious. And and two, I'm so heavily influenced by him that, you know, I, I don't I don't find very much 
for me, fun. That's not a fun ledge. Well, last year, whilst a global pandemic raged, the ledge that you chose to jump off was to release an album. <laughs> it was all, but but by all admission, it was already finished. It was already okay. finished. I didn't I didn't record it. Love came down was finished. No, the the ledge that I jumped off of last year was I I put out a movie. Oh my that goodness! Was, that was the ledge that I jumped off of last year. What is the movie called? It's called A New Holiday. It was a holiday movie, and it was on. Uh, it aired on PBS. Wow! Straight to PBS. That's that's pretty huge. I mean, it was, it's it's a blessing. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I'm in. I'm enjoying jumping off my ledges. Were you when you say you you did a movie? You acted in it. You produced it. You directed it. You did all of the above. All of the above, minimal acting. My family and I were in the very last scene because the main, or in the first scene, like the, the main character in it, we were her family. But yeah. And you wrote it? Co-wrote it with a really good friend of mine, Sophia Stevens. Wow, you are just uh, talent all over the place, Brian Owens. So before we close, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about a track on your most recent album, Love Came Down. It's a Stevie Wonder song called Heaven is 10 Zillion Light Years Away. And it also features your dad, Thomas Owens. Tell us a little bit about this song and then we'll take a listen. Well, all you got to do is listen to the lyrics. It's one of my favorite Stevie Wonder songs. And I think lyrically, we think about everything that's going on, everything that's been going on. Even at the time that, you know, I covered it, it was a very hopeful anthem and a great way to end the record. And switching it up from his version to putting more in the gospel style and having my dad on it. It was really exciting recording down in, at Royal Studios with Boo Mitchell at the place where Al Green recorded all of his hits and singing on the mic that Al Green recorded all of his hits on. Um, made it all the more sweeter. So I love I loved this song. I love this song genuinely and the message of it. Here it is. Heaven is 10 zillion light years away by Brian Owens and the Royal Five featuring Thomas Owens. They say that heaven is 10 zillion light years away And just the pure at heart Will walk a righteous street someday They say that heaven is Ten zillion light years away But if there is a God We need him now Where is your God? That's what my friends ask me I say it's taken him so long Cause we've got so far to come Tell me, people, why can't they say that hate is ten zillion light years away? Why can't the light of good shine on love in every soul? Why must my color black make me a lesser man? I thought this world was made for every man. He loves us all. That's what my God tells me. 
I say it's taken him so long Cause we've got so far to come In my heart I can feel it Feel the spirit Whoa, I can feel it Feel the spirit I can say that heaven is light years away So let us be pure in heart Just to walk a righteous streets I pray Let God's love let it shine within To save our evil soul Those who don't believe will never see the light Where is my God? He lives inside of me It's taking him so long Cause we've got so far to come Ah, people, where is your God? Where is your God? Inside, please let him be So quickly before we end, Brian, what's next for you? I want to build out a creative ecosystem in the metropolitan St. Louis area where we're not only putting out brands that are generating income that can go back into the community, experiences that young creatives can plug into, but we're also building out the pathways to get them there. Um, and and that's what we're focused on. We're like buying up and renting houses on my street to put artists in. We have a 17,000 square foot building uh, in North County that we're looking to build out as a creative space um, an incubator for for young creatives and uh yeah looking to do more movie projects and producing albums and i don't know what else how many what other ledges can we find <laughs> i want to find every ledge that there is creatively and jump off of it twice i feel sure that you will do that and we could have many conversations in the future like ledge by ledge we could just do a whole show of brian owen's ledges Oh, that's ledges. Hey, that might be that might be the title for an album. <laughs> Brian Owens, okay. ledges. I'm going to need a co-writer credits on that. <laughs> I got you. No problem. No problem. If you want to hear more Brian Owens music, you can find his albums, including his most recent release, Love Came Down, on Spotify. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. You're welcome, love. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify and through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guest today, Lindsay Dunnigan, 
FC Schultz, Wanda Tyner, and Brian Owens. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri. Mm-hmm.